every single day that I'm in the clinic. This is exceedingly common. And, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it is our current lifestyle. Uh, part of it is the food that we're eating. And so I think it warrants a conversation about that because I can tell you one thing, Chuck, the medications that are being used to treat acid reflux, like I'm not, I'm not here to vilify them today, but it is not a deficiency of proton pump inhibitors causing our epidemic of acid reflux. There's other things going on. And so if we want to understand the root of the problem, then we should unpack these issues a little bit and try to understand it better. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast, like Rapid City, South Dakota, Roanoke, Virginia, and Portland, Oregon. We appreciate you all helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 99 of season four, number 294 overall. And if you are hearing this right now, there is a near 100% chance that at some point in your life, you've had heartburn. But did you know that acid reflux is so common that about one in three adults will have it at least once a week? And that's even with a lot of them already on medication for it. So the question is, what can be done to put out those flames? We are going to find out today when we are joined by Dr. Will Bolsowitz, gastroenterologist extraordinaire and best-selling author of the book Fiber Fueled. He is here to tell us the best food do's and don'ts when it comes to heartburn. And then we're also going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag, answering your questions about acidic foods. What are they? And we're also going to talk about the best plant milks that can help counteract heartburn and the role that caffeine may play here. And we're also going to have some interesting thoughts from Dr. Bolsowitz about vinegar and heartburn. And then we're also going to raise our health IQs in a new way as we learn two words, two of the coolest health words that have never before been uttered on this show. So we really are getting taken to school when it comes to health and nutrition today. Stay tuned for that. But before we can get to any of that, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about Kinder Beauty and to thank them for making this episode of The Exam Room possible. Kinder Beauty is the monthly beauty subscription that delivers the best vegan and cruelty-free products right to your door. Each monthly box contains up to $165 worth of beauty and self-care products that are kind to your skin, and to animals. And right now, just in time for the holidays, Kinder Beauty is being especially kind to exam roomies like you. You can get 50% off your first box using the code examroom. That is half off using the code examroom, one word, when you shop at kinderbeauty.com. And best of all, a portion of every Kinder Beauty sale helps support the Physicians Committee's important work. And you can learn more and take advantage of this special offer right now by visiting kinderbeauty.com and using the code EXAMROOM. Okay, it is time now to bust out the fire extinguishers and stop the heartburn. Let's get some relief with Dr. Will Bolsowitz. What's up, Dr. B? What's up, Chuck? It is a pleasure to be here today. And um, we're here, we're going to try to tame the flames. 
tame the flame. But yeah, before we man. go there, as you were doing the intro to the show, I was looking through some of the comments. And I just want to bring forward some of these things that were already being discussed in the chat box. So I encourage everyone who's here with us today live. The reason that you come live is you get to participate and we get to communicate with one another. And that's kind of fun. So Joanna wrote, this is my favorite half hour, anytime, anywhere. Boom. That's what we're trying to <laughs> accomplish. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Emmanuel wrote, I ordered Fiber Field a few days ago. Excited to read it. So thank you, Emmanuel, for your support. And then I want to bring forward this because... Um, for people who are repeated uh, uh, viewers of the show, you perhaps have seen me here before. I come once a month and greatly look forward to these conversations. But, you know, really, I just hope that they're helpful to you. And um, so Susie Q wrote that she's sitting in the choir seats today and she's excited because Kiwi did the trick. What she's referring to is that she was doing Kiwi to treat her constipation. Yes. Oops. Yeah, we were talking about that on the last episode, man, how powerful that little kiwi is and why you chose that for the cover of your book, man. That's awesome. Uh, so Susie Q, that's that's fantastic. I'm super, super, super pumped for you. So let's see if we can get some more help to some more people here today. Um, before we field the first question, I'm actually going to steal it. I'm going to take the first question today. How often do you have patients come into you and they say, hey, Dr. B, I've got heartburn that just won't quit? I mean, every, every single day that I'm in the clinic, Chuck, this is, this is, you, you mentioned this in the intro that about one in three people in the United States suffer with acid reflux or heartburn type symptoms. And, um, this is exceedingly common. And I, I think that, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. Part of it is our current lifestyle. Uh, part of it is the food that we're eating. And so, uh, I think it warrants a conversation about that because I can tell you one thing, Chuck. The medications that are being used to treat acid reflux, things like proton pump inhibitors, like I'm not, I'm not here to vilify them today, but it is not a deficiency of proton pump inhibitors causing our epidemic of acid reflux. There's other things going on. And so if we want to understand the root of the problem, then we should unpack these issues a little bit and, and try to understand it better. All right. Well, let's see if we can't get some understanding here. Let's take our first question from Randy wanting to know flat out, what is the best way to stop heartburn? I think she's looking for some food do's and don'ts here. Uh, all right. So if we're, if we're talking about food specifically with heartburn, there are the things that you can do in the short term to try to get better control of your symptoms. And then there are the things that are the sort of what I would describe as the long-term strategy. The long-term strategy that's really intended to correct the root of the issue. Um, so with regard to things that we can do in the short term, there's a few things. Uh, one, one is to be cautious with the specific uh, foods that you eat. That would include spicy foods. So like Mexican jalapenos. That would include uh, acidic foods. So orange juice, tomato sauce. Um, the uh, you want to be careful with fatty foods. Fatty foods actually slow the emptying of the stomach. So when you go high fat, like this is a, this is an argument in favor of being on a, on a lower oil diet or no oil diet. Um, when you go high fat, you actually increase the time that food spends in the stomach. And the more time that it spends in your stomach, the more likely it is to splash back upward. Um, another thing is timing. So we want to be careful about what time we're eating. So when we lay down flat at night to go to bed, gravity, which right now me sitting upright, gravity is working in my favor, pulling things down. 
But the minute that I recline and I go flat, gravity is not working in my favor anymore. In fact, it may actually be working against me. And we, we want an empty stomach when we go to bed. So this is where um, we want to make sure we're having a nice early dinner, which frankly is the way that we're supposed to do it anyway. But nice early dinner and then minimum of three, but ideally four hours or more before you go to bed. Uh, I would re be remiss, Chuck, if I did not also mention that alcohol consumption clearly predisposes to acid reflux. And this can be alcohol consumption at any time of day, but it's particularly problematic when people have that little late night drink, maybe it's one or two glasses of red wine, and then you go to lay down, go to bed, and maybe the acid reflux doesn't wake you up that night. Maybe you actually sleep through it, but then you wake up the next day and you're having worsening of your symptoms. And the reason that you're having worsening of the symptoms is because your esophagus was basically um, drowning in a pool of acid overnight as a result of the alcohol that you had right before bedtime. Mm. So skip the beer, skip the wine, go for an herbal tea instead, perhaps? Yeah, herbal tea is a good choice. Glass of water is a good choice. Um, but uh, uh, clearly, we don't want the alcohol. And ideally, there's no alcohol at all during the day. Um, but if you're going to do that, uh, you know what, Chuck, I almost forgot to mention caffeine. Sorry, there's like so many things I want going through my head. Uh, caffeine also, by the way, like coffee, for example, can can make acid reflux worse. It pains me to say that. Because if I were the patient, I would struggle with that. I know that. No question. Um, but eh. You and a lot of other people as well, man. Um, here's a question. I'm glad that Ellen is asking this one because this is one that my wife subscribes to or had subscribed to for years growing up. Uh, Ellen's question is, can milk help with heartburn? Her thinking here, Dr. B, is because uh, milk or dairy is a base and she's trying to counteract that acid there. So what do we know about dairy and reflux? Yeah, I mean, in the short term, if you're trying to neutralize, but there's other ways that you could do that. You know, you, you're not required to use milk to accomplish that. So, like, can can milk in the short term make a person who's having heartburn feel a little bit better? Sure, it can. I mean, it would be it would be uh, we we have to be honest with regard to that. But there's better choices than that. And so, you know, I mean, Tums, for example, can do the same thing. And Tums actually has calcium in it, which many of us don't get enough of in our diet anyway. Um, to be completely honest with you, Chuck, you could drink a glass of soy milk and soy milk would accomplish the same goal as well. So um, I think that there's a number of different options that you could choose. Uh, Alka-Seltzer is another one. Number of different options that you can choose. You certainly shouldn't feel like you should be pursuing milk in the interest of treating your acid reflux. And, you know, I think the other thing too to bear in mind when it comes to this is are we um, uh, accepting short-term gain at the price of long-term loss, because sometimes we do that with our dietary choices. So you may feel better in the short term with the dairy that you're consuming, but let's bear in mind that it's high in saturated fat. And, you know, I was just a moment ago talking about the problem with consuming fat is that it, it can, it can uh, affect your risk of acid reflux. Uh, you mentioned soy milk here. Uh, does that go for all plant milks that might be beneficial in that case? The advantage of the soy milk is that it's it's uh, more proteinaceous, it's higher in protein. And this is the reason why, like, for example, if you take a cup of coffee and you put soy milk into your coffee, it, it will cut the acid. And you notice that it actually works. Whereas if you put almond milk into a cup of coffee, you don't really feel like there's a substantial difference in terms of the acidity of your coffee. And that's because the almond milk is so much thinner, uh, less protein. So so the uh, the point from my perspective is if we're trying to, if the goal is to cut the acid, that's 
part of the reason why I would do the soy milk as opposed to the alternative choices. All right. So a little bit later on this afternoon, I'm going to record uh, the 300th episode or close to the 300th episode of the podcast. And it's going to be the nice. audio replay of this. And here's why I'm mentioning this, because in all of those episodes, never once has anybody ever used the word protonaceous. And so therefore, my friend, you get those honors. And at the very least, we have the word of the day, protonaceous. <laughs> I love it. I, <laughs> there are many words that I prefer to protonaceous, but you know, living in the world of being plant-based and everyone assuming that I must be like a protein malnourished, uh, starving vegan that uh, can't possibly be fit and put on muscle, I, I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I'm not really too worried about protein. I'm not desperately seeking protein sources. I'm just quite simply eating plants. Plants contain protein. Dude, I love it so much. If I could spell it, I'd change my Twitter handle to it. Um, it's it's so good. Um, let's take a question here from Cheryl. Cheryl is wondering about chocolate. This is at 12-12. She's wondering about chocolate and whether that may contribute to heartburn in some cases. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. I feel I just I feel so horrible because I feel like this is this is the world that I live in having these conversations several times a day, is I always feel like I'm taking away a person's fun, you know, because I love chocolate, I love uh, coffee. And, but um, chocolate does also contain some caffeine and that's part of the issue. Uh, green tea, for example, green tea is an incredibly healthy drink, but green tea can also exacerbate heartburn symptoms. And so, so chocolate is another one that we need to add to the list. And Tiff has a question here. What's the difference between heartburn and GERD? Is there a difference between the two, a distinction? Heartburn is the symptom. So heartburn is the experience that where you are describing what's happening here. GERD is more of an umbrella term describing the condition. It's a medical condition. So GERD is not a one-time event, all right? Uh, GERD is the, something that you are dealing with on a chronic basis. Gastroesophageal reflux disease. And by the way, uh, interesting point. In the U.S., we spell it GERD, G-E-R-D, um, E for esophagus. If you go over to uh, the U.K., they actually do GORD, G-O-R-D, because when they do esophagus, they place an O in front of esophagus. So I don't know, GERD, GORD, whatever. But it's it, it, it can get a little um, confusing when you're reading research papers because you will re you will see them refer to GORD. And just to be clear for everyone, that's that's uh, what they're referring to. Gastroesophageal reflux disease isn't just heartburn. I, I think it brings up an interesting uh, point, a topic for conversation for for this, Chuck, which is what are the manifestations of gastroesophageal reflux disease. Mm. And there can be a number of different manifestations. One of them is heartburn. So heartburn burning below the chest could be confused with chest pain related to your heart. Um, you wanna make sure the heart is safe first. That's one of the big medical concepts here. So you, you always wanna get checked out if there's any question, but that's heartburn. You could also have a sour taste in the back of the throat. We call it a sour brash. You could have regurgitation. Regurgitation is where things come up and you may feel them come up to your throat. And in some cases in patients, they will have them actually come all the way into their mouth or out of their mouth, exploding out, almost like they're vomiting, except that they're not vomiting, they're regurgitating. And the difference between regurgitation and vomiting is that vomiting is associated with nausea. You feel that nauseated feeling like, oh gosh, I feel queasy, I feel sick. And then it comes up, whereas regurgitation is just, it just comes up. There's no, there's no warning. There's no nausea. There's no other associated symptom. It's just stuff coming up. 
Um, but there are, there are other things that gastroesophageal reflux disease can be associated with. It can be associated with injury to the esophagus, which we describe as esophagitis. It can be associated with difficulty swallowing, uh, strictures, so that's scar tissue within the esophagus. Chronic gastroesophageal reflux disease can increase our risk of developing esophageal cancer, specifically a type of cancer called esophageal adenocarcinoma, which is rapidly rising. So since the 1970s, like literally 10 times more of these types of cancers than we used to see. And um, esophageal cancer is, before you develop esophageal cancer, you first have a condition called Barrett's esophagus. So Barrett's esophagus is a precancerous condition found in the esophagus that you really would not know that you have this unless you do an upper endoscopy and you take a look. And when you do it, you can see it very clearly during an upper endoscopy. Upper endoscopy, by the way, uh, for those who aren't familiar, is a medical procedure that a gastroenterologist like myself, this is what I do, and my patient will be asleep and I will run a tube that's about the size of my pinky and it's got a light and a camera on the tip. I'll run that down into their esophagus, into their stomach, and take a look to see what's going on. Um, in some cases, Chuck, gastroesophageal reflux disease <clears throat> can manifest with a cough, with a change in voice, with a feeling of fullness right here in the throat, uh, with asthma or aspiration. So these are what we would describe as extra intestinal manifestations of acid reflux. So these are some of the things. If there's anything that I forgot, I'm sure there's something I've forgotten. You guys drop it in the comment box if there's something that you can think of. That's a manifestation of gastroesophageal reflux disease. And I'll, I'm, I'm going to be keeping my eye on it while Chuck continues to uh, pepper me with questions. <laughs> it's them who's peppering you with questions. I'm just reading them, man. Uh, Shauna here at 1217. I get heartburn from tea. Is it the caffeine? I didn't realize that. Yeah, it can be. Um, so... Even these healthy drinks, black tea and green tea, can cause heartburn symptoms. So just be conscious and aware of that. Generally, generally, uh, decaf teas, including particularly um, uh, herbal teas. Herbal teas are kind of where it's at. That should be the go-to beverage if you have this issue. For many of us, Chuck, our morning coffee is really more of a ritual than we realize. So it's not so much the coffee, it's that we enjoy having that warm beverage every morning to kind of jumpstart our day. And when I've had a number of patients that I transition over to having an herbal tea in the morning, like it could be a ginger tea, fennel, uh, chamomile. These are a number of options. And um, when they transition over, they find that they still have a great morning, still wake up perfectly well, and they, and they feel much better. That's that is interesting. The whole ritual thing and, and not necessarily the caffeine or the fact that it's a cup of coffee. Maybe you just like to have a warm cup of something in your hand and that just soothes the soul. It's it's I think it really is actually a big part is just that Chuck. And I've had patients who literally they just warm up some water and like literally just warm water, nothing else in it. And they drink that and they and they do well. Go to town. Doesn't get much yeah. healthier than that. Um Wendell here is looking for some specifics here. Uh, does apple cider vinegar and water help with heartburn? That's an interesting one. Vinegar with heartburn. You would think vinegar is kind of acidic. Yeah. So this brings us into a bigger conversation. And this is a great 
question by Wendell um, because there is a lot of discussion out there, and there are people who will recommend apple cider vinegar. And I'm gonna I'm gonna explain to you my thoughts on this and what I've experienced in my in my medical practice. So because I'm very open, I'm very open to the possibility of something like this working. Um, but you know, of course, I'm also guided by science. I want there to be research to back it up, and if there's not research, then I want it to at least be very logical. So. Uh, I already mentioned earlier that acid can exacerbate heartburn or reflux issues. So I mentioned uh, pasta sauce and orange juice and apple cider vinegar obviously is acidic. It's a vinegar. So, you know, is this good? Is this bad? What's the deal? Well, I think, you know, let me step away from that question for a moment. We'll come back to it. And let's talk about what is the root cause of acid reflux? Um, what's really going on here? And it used to be uh, back in the day, like when I was in medical school 20 years ago, that we thought acid reflux was an obesity issue and that people were carrying excess weight around their waist and that weight was actually applying pressure, increasing abdominal pressures and driving stuff up into the chest. Like it was just squeezing your stomach and by squeezing the stomach, you're pushing it up. Uh, but that doesn't really seem to be true. We have so many people who are, you know, rail thin and they have acid reflux or gastroesophageal reflux disease. So we knew that there was more to this and we continued our investigation. And about 10 years ago, we came around to, it was actually some of my mentors in Chicago, uh, Dr. John Pandolfino, Dr. Peter Carillis. They were sort of leading the charge. Uh, to to look at the effect of motility now motility is a little bit hard to objectively measure but what this is is it's the way that our intestines are moving so like right now as we all sit here myself chuck all you at home our intestines are moving literally right now and what if the pattern of the intestines moving is problematic and so they started to look at this and what they found, Chuck, is that the esophagus would have these things taking place in people who have acid reflux called transient lower esophageal sphincter relaxations. And what would occur is that the, the bottom of the esophagus, which is a sphincter muscle, like it's like a ring muscle, it would just boom, open up and then relax. It would just like boom, open up and it would allow things to go up. And um, so this got us a little bit closer to explaining and understanding, but Let's fast forward to today. Where are we in our understanding of acid reflux? New, new science is emerging as we speak regarding the power of the gut microbiome. And acid reflux is no exception. There are microbes in our esophagus, meaning that there is an esophageal microbiome. There are microbes in our stomach. Not many because we have stomach acid, but there are. And what they have discovered is that people who have acid reflux have changes in their microbiome. So the microbes affect motility. The microbes, by the way, are also related to obesity. And it appears that the microbes may be related to developing acid reflux. And here's part of the reason why I think this makes complete sense, Chuck. In a randomized controlled trial where they took people with acid reflux, and they gave them a fiber supplement. They saw improvement of their acid reflux symptoms. 
that makes no sense if it's just stomach acid. That makes no sense if this is motility. So what is the deal there? And the deal is that I think that the fiber is helping to correct the microbiome. So coming back to the apple cider vinegar, I know that we took a huge tangent there, but welcome back. We're talking about apple cider vinegar. That was Wendell's <laughs> question. And uh, thank you, Wendell. The, the answer to this from my perspective is this. There are no studies looking at apple cider vinegar in terms of stopping heartburn symptoms and making people feel better. There are studies with vinegar. Vinegar is produced by microbes. Vinegar is produced by microbes, all right? And when they create vinegar, they are doing this because it actually creates an environment that's friendly to microbes. So, and there's data, for example, that, that uh, Michael Greger will talk about with the benefits of, of vinegar consumption, right? And I think that this is, again, related to the microbiome. So when you consume vinegar, there is the possibility that we could be improving the microbiome. But there is also the possibility that the acidity of the vinegar is actually going to exacerbate our issue. And what I've experienced, there was a period of time a few years ago where I was making the recommendation to people to try this because I wanted to see what would happen. Um, I wanted to see if I could help people using vinegar. And the issue that I ran into is that many of my patients were seeing worsening of their symptoms. And then I would go to do the upper endoscopy that I was talking about a moment ago. And I would find objectively worsening of their acid reflux, meaning that there was increased damage to their esophagus caused by acid reflux when they were using the vinegar. So from my perspective, it's hard for me to come on board and um, recommend that people use apple cider vinegar. But that being said, if you were hypothetically my patient, and of course, this is not medical advice. This is just me explaining things and educating. But if you were hypothetically my, my medical patient, and I were sitting in the office with you, and you say to me, Dr. B, I was having heartburn, and I started doing apple cider vinegar, and I am having no heartburn, none. My acid reflux is cured. I would say, cool, sounds good. Let's roll with it, and maybe maybe we'll come off of it in a little bit, but for now, let's keep it going, because it's working. But if you were asking me, Dr. B, should I try apple cider vinegar? I would say, why don't we try fiber instead? Because we have this randomized control trial that shows that it works. And I don't have that with apple cider vinegar. Always comes back to fiber. Always comes back to fiber. It is indeed. Say, I'm not it, trying to be biased nutrient. here. It's just like there's just a ridiculous amount of research that people aren't talking about when it comes to dietary fiber or even fiber supplements. There's just a ridiculous amount of research showing how beneficial it is to us. And so every single conversation, I can insert it because it actually there's research for it. Before we get to our next question, just wanted to take a second and remind you that this episode is brought to you by Kinder Beauty. Visit kinderbeauty.com to learn more about their cruelty-free beauty box subscription service and use the code EXAMROOM to save 50% off your first box. And so now, Dr. B, we have a question from PMG. And PMG is wondering what effect antacids may have on the gut. I think specifically they're wondering about microbiome and gut health overall. Yeah, it depends on what antacids we're referring to. Are we referring to antacids that are neutralizing stomach acid like Tums uh, or Maalox? Or are we referring to medications that are being used to reduce the production of stomach acid like H2 receptor antagonists or proton pump inhibitors? 
Um, I view these as being along a spectrum in terms of the intensity of what you're doing to the environment. There is no question that we evolved to have stomach acid for a reason. It's there to help us with digestion. It's also help there to help us sterilize our food. Uh, and when we remove stomach acid, there is the possibility that although it may improve our heartburn symptoms, it can have downstream negative consequences. There can be potentially a price to pay for that. And I think that one of the, the uh, things that is clearly there, I mean, Chuck, when, the proton pump inhibitors, these medications, it's a very hot topic whether or not they're good or bad. And people, like many things in our world these days, feel very passionately about their opinion. And that's okay. But at the end of the day, let's stick to the facts and try to find what, like, where the facts actually exist. And the fact is this. People who take these medic medications chronically, without question, are at increased risk of developing gastrointestinal infections. Specifically, an infection, Clostridium difficile. And this is a nasty bug. And the nasty bug, Clostridium difficile, only shows up when there has been damage to the microbiome. Like the most common time to find this bug, C. diff, is after antibiotics, right? You destroy the microbiome, boom, there's the C. diff, it takes over. But in this case, we're not talking about antibiotics, we're talking about the chronic use of proton pump inhibitors. And it, they increase your risk of developing this infection. So the point from my perspective is that although there are patients who do require these medications chronically, and I will recommend it to them, there, what we don't want is we don't want excessive chronic use if we can avoid it. And this is where, to me, the problem is not so much just the medication. The problem is the healthcare system in the way that we're using the medication because we are not providing proper counseling to our patients to empower them with information about diet and lifestyle to get at the root cause of their problem. And as a result of that, they become dependent on the medicine, the proton pump inhibitor, when in fact we could reduce their dependence on the proton pump inhibitor and ideally get them off of the medicine altogether if we address the root of the problem. You know, Mic drop, I'm out. I, I know, dude, I, I mean, you're, you're just, you're speaking my language here. And I think that you're speaking to a lot of people who are watching today. And um, I don't know if the experience was similar for the exam roomies who are tuning in today. But for me, it wasn't until I really stumbled down um, this rabbit hole doing the exam room that I truly understood that medication was used to treat the symptoms and not necessarily uh, cure an illness. And so right. especially these chronic diseases that people have. So I think that really it's it's incumbent upon doctors, it's incumbent upon the patients, it's incumbent upon everybody to really kind of open your eyes and, and kind of educate yourself to that fact. And honestly, Dr. B, I'm not sure what it's going to take to make that happen. It's, it's a really, really arduous task. I think that we will get there eventually, but we really do have to rethink some things, man. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I, I th well, I, I think that the issue, part of the issue, Chuck, is that um, there is no financial gain really for anyone other than the patient who derives a health benefit 
there is no financial gain from discussions about diet and lifestyle. That's the problem, right? Because a doctor doesn't get paid to have a 15 or 20 minute conversation with their patient about diet and lifestyle. And this creates an issue because the doctor can move on, like prescribe the medica medication, address the symptom and move on and see another patient and do the same thing again. And that's two patients in the time that it took to see one and provide them with proper counseling about diet and lifestyle. And, you know, since we're on this topic, let's, let's talk about this for a quick moment. I just mentioned the um, study looking at psyllium husk and taking a fiber supplement. Let me add two more studies to the mix because look, if I'm going to complain about our healthcare system, not providing education, then you know what? Let me just do it right now. <laughs> you guys are here. Let's talk about it. So two additional studies that I want to mention. Uh, one, where they took a group of people who had uh, acid reflux. This was actually an ear, nose, and throat study. And they um, put them on a plant-centered Mediterranean diet. So like very plant-heavy Mediterranean diet. And they saw that they improved their acid reflux. Now, is it the fiber? That's probably part of it, but there's a lot more to it as well. The point being though, a plant-based diet, a plant-centered Mediterranean diet improves acid reflux. And another study where they took people and they removed alcohol, removed caffeine, and replaced it with water. And if you have the audacity to make this move, you will improve your acid reflux, right? So more fiber, more plants, more water. It's very simple. And this is a this is sort of the backbone of a lifestyle designed to enhance and improve acid reflux symptoms. All right, let's see if we can grab a couple of questions here rapid fire before we wrap things up. Um, I know you just said, you know, get, get the caffeine out, get the, you know, increase your water, get the alcohol out. But Cheryl at 1221 is wondering about decaf green tea. Is that in the safe zone? Here's the beauty of this issue that I'm discussing. If you have symptoms, let's say that your symptom is heartburn. If you have symptoms, your body is giving you feedback immediately. So let your body give you, like listen to what your body is trying to tell you. If you, if you have heartburn symptoms exacerbated by the consumption of green tea, then try decaf. And if you try decaf and you have no heartburn symptoms, boom, you win. But if you try decaf, and you continue to have heartburn symptoms on decaf, then perhaps that is still causing problems because caffeine is not the only thing in green tea. So there are other things that could potentially do it. The point being, whether it's whether it's green tea or coffee or chocolate or you know whatever it may be, any food, if you feel like it exacerbates your heartburn symptoms, see what happens if you reduce it or eliminate it and allow your body to give you the feedback that you need to figure out what to do. Uh, 12.30, this one from Amy. My worst heartburn comes when I eat something that is made from white flour. Why could that be? 
That's interesting. That is not so. That is not a classic food that causes heartburn. But I think if we go back to our understanding of that, uh, I was speaking to a few moments ago. Our understanding of the root cause of what's taking place when a person develops acid reflux. What's happening is a combination of motility with the gut microbiome being out of balance. What does white flour do to the gut microbiome? It's not good, right? We have removed the fiber and we're effectively keeping the equivalent of a sugar, right? We're keeping the starch. That's it. And so this is my suspicion is that anything that contains white flour is ultra processed. And because it's an ultra processed food, it may be having negative consequences to the gut microbiome, which can exacerbate these issues if the root cause is in the gut microbes. All right. Final question of the day is a detour from what it is that we've been talking about. Teresa posted this one in the chat and then Susan almost immediately was like, yes, I have been curious about that too. So here is the question at 1221. What does it mean when my stomach growls? Am I hungry or is food just processing in my stomach? Yeah. Okay. So, um, Chuck, you mentioned earlier that proteinaceous is your favorite word. It, oh, today. today it is, yeah. <laughs> I I think I may have the ability to one up proteinaceous. I mean, it is it's a decent word, I, but I can do better. Dude, that bar is awfully high. Good luck. Good luck. Oh, all right, ready? There is a word, and this is actually medically uh, accurate here. There is a word that we use in medicine to describe loud bowel sounds, loud bowel <laughs> noises, and it is borborygmy. Borborygmy. <laughs> is what you are having is when it, when you have loud bowel noises borborygmy is that moment where you're like oh no did my neighbor just hear that did they just hear my my stomach making all this noise now clearly this can take place in the setting of of hunger uh this is the reason why you will find that the the witching hour for borborygmy is from 11 a.m until 12 noon because we're starting to get hungry and we're gearing up it can also just be digestion if you have the absence of other symptoms in association with this, you just had a meal, your stomach's making some grumbling noises, then I, I don't think that there's any cause for concern just having these growling noises by themselves. It can just be normal digestion. Um, but then beyond that, it can also speak to your intestine. It's moving and there may be a motility disturbance. And if that's the case, then there's going to be other associated symptoms. Like you could have bloating or discomfort or nausea. Um, many people have these symptoms, the borborygmy, when they are uh, going through a period of stress. So the, the major question here when it comes to the borborygmy is, are there any associated symptoms? And is this just something that's taking place when you're hungry and then it goes away as soon as you eat? Because um, if there are no other associated symptoms or if it's just an appetite thing, then you're good. Don't worry about it. But if there are other associated symptoms along with it, then it may be something worth discussing with your doctor. Borborygmy. That sounds like a like a, a wacky DJ name. Like, hey, I'm Borborygmy, and I'm here to play the hits for you. What do you say? You, if you were if you were a DJ for weddings, it would be quite hilarious if your name were Borborygmy. <laughs> to me, it's like very primal, like Borborygmy. Like I just came out of the cave and I just Borborygmy all over the place. But that's just bow sounds. <laughs>
everyone fear Borborygmy. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. That's that's hysterical. Uh, we have a few people here, uh, Dr. B, in the chat wondering whether you do telemedicine. I don't think that you do, but you do have a new program, uh, your Dr. B's Microbiome 21. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. And actually, since I only um, come once a month to have these conversations with you, Chuck, this is, this is, I guess, my one opportunity to talk about this because it's starting January 1st. So, and basically what I have done is I have created a challenge, a 21-day challenge to help people kick off 2022. So now this is not like exclusively a meal plan. I don't want people to expect that, but there are definitely recipes that are in there and they're very inclusive um, to anyone who's interested in a plant-based diet. There, This is not um, uh, something where like, I'm just gonna give you three meals a day. Instead, what this is, is that I'm gonna empower you with knowledge. And through that empowerment, you are going to start to work towards developing over 21 days healthy habits. And my big thing is that this is not about quick fixes or shortcuts or fads. This should be when we do like when we are motivated at the beginning of a new year, this should be about establishing a foundation that can propel our health for the rest of the year. And that's, that's really what the Microbiome 21 is. It's about empowering you with that foundation so that you can set your health on cruise control uh, as you move into 2022. I'm super excited about it. It's designed to be very inclusive from a price perspective. Um, it's going to be a ton of fun. There are surprises that are built into it. I'm going to just tell you guys about that right now. There are some surprises in there. And um, I think the people who go through this, like basically every single day you will receive some sort of challenge from me with associated information. And it should take about 20 minutes or so. Uh, and in some cases you have to add in cooking time, but basically about 20 minutes a day to participate in the challenge. You don't have to start on January 1st if you don't want to, you can do it on your own time. Anyone who signs up, you get lifelong access, but it could be something that could be fun to do, start off the new year in style and invite your friends if you want to. There it is. Dr. B's Microbiome 21. Uh, that's at theplantfedgut.com. There's also going to be a link to this if you're listening to the podcast in the show notes uh, or just head over to theplantfedgut.com. Uh, and don't forget to pick up your copy of Fiber Fueled. As we heard today, fiber is just perhaps the single greatest nutrient ever known to man, probably actually is. And so that's what makes that, that, that book so daggone good. And it's got the kiwi on the cover, which apparently that too is a bit of a cure-all for some people. So you really can't go wrong here, Dr. B. <laughs> I appreciate it, Chuck. I appreciate <laughs> your support, my friend. All right. Now, listen, if you enjoyed the show today, be sure to uh, like the video and subscribe to the channel on YouTube and give us a thumbs up on Facebook as well, if you would be so kind. Uh, but for today, my friends, that is in fact all the time that we have. So I want to say thank you one more time to the pro <laughs> protonaceous one, Dr. B, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, man. I appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who is here with us live today and, and participating in the chat box. And I thank you guys for your support. Oh, curveball at the end. Can you spell borborygmy? We have somebody, Dr. B, who is wondering if you can spell borborygmy. Yeah. Yep. For those of you who are feeling so compelled to read more about borborygmy, B-O-R-B-O-R-Y-G-M-I, borborygmy.
There it is. I would not have even been close. So thank you very much for clearing that up, my man. I was, uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was the spelling bee champion for my school. And I, then I went to the regional finals. And to this day, the word that I got, like everyone else had basic words, spell eagle. Oh, come on. I could do that in my sleep. That's so easy. But I got, someone must have hated me among the judges because they tossed me the hardest word. And to this day, it still haunts me, Chuck. I'm an eighth grader. I'm standing on stage in front of the microphone. Everyone's looking at me. And they asked me the word suddenness. Is what? it two ends or one? I still don't know, Chuck. It still haunts me. Oh, and, um, brutal. So, and please, people in the chat box, please don't, please don't, you know, <laughs> tell me how easy this word is. I don't need to hear that right now. I'm still upset about it, uh, even though this is like 40 years later. But my, anyway, my daughter is seven. And just out of curiosity, she's seven years old. She She's very good with words. And so I asked her, I was like, sweetie, can you spell suddenness? And she just like, boom, like S-U-D-D-E. Is it two N's or one? I don't even know, but she got it right. My daughter got it right. I got it wrong. She's seven. And now it's just like, to this day, I still... Oh, thinking about it. Oh, that's brutal. As the parent, no, that's right. just brutal. Like you're equally parts embarrassed and and proud, you know. So very proud. I mean, my goodness gracious. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, okay. Well, on on that uh, on that note, I don't think we've ever ended a show quite like this. To be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, this has been fantastic. See, we just need a talk show, man, where we can just open up the floor and go. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, man, this this has been great. So, uh, Doctor B, thank you very much, my friend. Don't forget to join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. As always, that is your best opportunity, as Dr. Bolsowitz said, to interact with our experts live. Get your questions answered right then and there. But if you can't join us live on Wednesdays, you can also send me your questions ahead of time on Instagram. I am at Chuck Carroll, WLC. And if you haven't already done so, here's a favor to ask. Please subscribe to this podcast, the Exam Room Podcast by the Physicians Committee on Apple Podcast or Spotify or wherever you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating because every new subscription, every five-star rating helps to get this information to those who need it the most. Think about this. There is somebody out in this world right now who is suffering from unbearable heartburn and thinks that they can't make it another day. But if you subscribe and you leave that five-star rating and you help us climb a little bit higher in the ratings, we can be right there. When they search for help on podcasts, we can be right at the top and get them the help that they need. So thank you in advance. This episode is generously sponsored by Kinder Beauty. Founders Daniela Monet and Ivana Lynch created this monthly beauty subscription box to offer cruelty-free products that you'll absolutely love and that have never been tested on animals. Daniela and Ivana are offering now, very specially just for you, 50% off your first box with the code EXAMROOM, and a portion of sales comes right back to support the Physicians Committee. And you can learn all about Kinder Beauty, what they have to offer at kinderbeauty.com and get that subscription. And remember, 
use the promo code EXAMROOM, one word, to save 50% off of your first box. Perfect for the holidays, by the way. What do you have to lose? Look your best? Treat animals kindly? That's a win-win, my friend. Kinderbeauty.com, EXAMROOM is the code to save 50%. And for today, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Will Bolsowitz for helping us raise our health IQs today. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it proteinaceously plant-based.